Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The president wants billions to fix the fabric of America, our broken-down transportation system. Have you gotten on a train recently or driven on a highway or taken a plane? Uh, I don't have to tell you that (laughs) the state of our infrastructure is decidedly poor. Investing in infrastructure, there could be a big environmental payoff down the road. Also, making sure the fish you buy is sustainably caught. It's not as simple as you might think. You can reform the fishing industry to make it sustainable. That's ideal, right? But that will take a long time. Or you could redefine sustainability to fit the current seafood industrial model. And that's what we're worried is happening. We give the Marine Stewardship Council a grilling. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The economy's teetering and the election is nearing. President Obama is betting big on infrastructure. I am announcing a new plan for rebuilding and modernizing America's roads and rails and runways for the long term. I want America to have the best infrastructure in the world. The president wants $50 billion fast to build out and repair thousands of miles of roads and rails. Melissa Lafsky tells us that infrastructure is sorely in need of a little TLC. She edits the blog The Infrastructurist, and Lafsky says the president's plan has big implications for the environment as well. One of the interesting aspects about this proposal is that it's integrating rail and air travel into the federal highway and service transportation programs. So traditionally, ever since the 50s, the U.S. has had the federal highway transportation program, which has been obviously very focused on highways. So what we're doing now is basically integrating larger rail projects like high-speed rail, as well as uh, aviation projects, and putting it all under the same umbrella as a federal transportation program. So what that could do is essentially it could drastically impact our urban planning, our fuel emissions. I mean, trains are electric. They run on electricity. So our carbon output as a nation, if we all shifted more towards rapid transit, could really make an impact on our environmental status in this country. So, you know, a lot of focus here on rails, but what about the runways and and airports? What are the environmental implications of what the president's talking about there? Well, there could be vast environmental implications, particularly with NextGen, which is the modernized air traffic control system that uh, routes planes via satellite. And it can have a dramatic impact on the fuel efficiency of flights, particularly by streamlining when planes take off and land. And just from a passenger perspective, it could dramatically decrease delays. But um, we could cut an, an enormous amount of fuel by installing this system and having it as our nationwide air traffic control system. You know, one thing that I found a little puzzling about this is we're talking about, in some cases, maintenance and repair, which isn't that the kind of stuff we'd normally do via the transportation bill 
And by the way, whatever happened to that? Wasn't Congress supposed <laughs> to reauthorize that highway spending bill? Well, you've really hit the crux of the matter. The transportation bill has been on life support for about a year. It expired, and then it's been getting these short-term extensions. Because basically, if it's allowed to completely expire, then that's it. The spigot is turned off, and there's no federal transportation funding for maintenance of roads, bridges, tunnels, and more. Now. The reason that a new transportation bill has not been passed is because there is so much contention in Congress about how to fund it. So Obama has come along and put forth some very interesting proposals, but the issue still remains: how will it be paid for? And there's a bit of an environmental twist here as well, because as I understand it. He wants to pay for some of this infrastructure investment by yoink, taking away some subsidies from the oil and gas industry. Is that right? Yes, eliminating certain tax breaks for oil and gas, and that would cover, according to what has been released so far, that would cover the first fifty billion. So there would be this kickstart of around fifty billion dollars just to get us going on、uh, the roads, rails, and runways, and then the rest of the funding—it's still a bit up in the air where it would come from. There's also the fact that、uh, oil and gas companies—they、uh, have a pretty powerful lobbying group, and they have a lot of clout. In Congress, and they are certainly unhappy at the idea of paying higher taxes that will go directly towards funding this proposal. So it's definitely going to be a very contentious topic. So this looks iffy on the Hill.、Uh, the transportation bill is, in your words, on life support. So what's your hunch?、Uh, will these、uh, things the president's proposing here come to pass? I think maybe、uh, the full extent of the funding may not happen. The fifty billion dollars of initial investment that might be pretty tough to get through. It is a bit of our political reality. What do voters vote on? They vote on gas taxes. They vote on、uh, what have you done for me lately? And there is a lack of larger vision in our political climate. But、um, I'm optimistic about it. Melissa Lafsky is editor in chief of theinfrastructurist dot com. Thanks very much. Thank you. You might not have heard of the Marine Stewardship Council, but if you've shopped for seafood at a Whole Foods or Walmart lately, you've probably seen its work. The MSC puts those blue checkmark labels on seafood that's deemed sustainably harvested, a sort of eco seal of approval. But an opinion piece in the journal Nature says the MSC is quote failing to protect the environment and needs radical reform. Jennifer Jacquet is the lead author. She's a researcher at the University of British Columbia Fisheries Centre. What we think is wrong is that the rules of the MSC for certification are too loosely worded and can be loosely interpreted by third-party certifiers, the ones who actually come in and do the certifying. So the MSC they grant the logo once these third-party units say. Yeah, the fishery is good. Go ahead and drop the logo on it. We'd like to see those rules tightened up so that those third-party certifiers, which operate for profit and have a financial incentive to certify the fishery, have less room to wriggle around in and certify anything that comes their way. So the folks who really do the the down in the trenches work on certifying, they stand to make money by saying yes, and that's part of the problem here. Exactly. There's a financial incentive to certify a fishery. It's a very hard problem to get around, but that is currently the the way the market's structured. 
And another thing you raise here is that they don't really address fisheries where the intent is not really for you and I to eat that fish. It's for that fish to be fed to another fish or something like that. That's right. The end use of the product really isn't considered. And they would say that's very democratic, that anyone can apply for certification. But the problem is that fisheries are applying that actually turn their product into fish meal to feed to livestock and to farm fish. And this in and of itself is unsustainable. So give me an example of that. Well, a recent example is the certification of Antarctic krill. Earlier this summer, the MSC certified a a fishery for Antarctic krill, and that fishery um, is turning the product into fish meal and fish supplements to feed some consumers and also farmed fish. Antarctic krill forms the basis of the marine food web in the Antarctic. And the Antarctic, if you can try to imagine this, is only 10% of the global ocean, but supports 50% of the globe's marine mammals. So this is a, a majorly important species to those animals, and we're taking them and turning it into feed for domestic animals. Jaquette and her co-authors say several fisheries certified by the MSC are not truly sustainable. The authors say Pacific hake and Bering Sea pollock stocks are in decline, and not enough is known about a population of the so-called Chilean sea bass. Jaquette says it sends the wrong signal to consumers. I know consumers want sustainable seafood. There are two options if you want sustainable seafood. You can reform the fishing industry to make it sustainable. That's ideal, right? But that will take a long time. Fisheries are really in big trouble. Or you could redefine sustainability to fit the current seafood industrial model. And that's what we're worried is happening with the current MSC process. So what should those of us who are just going to the store and buying fish do? Ally yourself with a retailer, perhaps more than an eco-label, and make it known to your local fish counter that sustainability is important to you. I mean, we don't want to totally undermine the issue that consumers are looking for guilt-free products. That's a really good thing, and hopefully it can drive industry. But on the other hand, we want to make consumers aware that what they're being told and what they're actually getting are not the same thing. And that issue of deception is really important in the marketplace. Jaquette's nature piece is signed by some big names in fishery science. We asked the Marine Stewardship Council to respond. Carrie Coughlin, MSC's regional director for the Americas, denied there's anything fishy about the council's certification. The standard by which we measure fisheries for sustainability, it's a very rigorous process. I would say that it is not at all loosely applied. Independent certification teams do the assessments. They're on site. They look at all available data. And there's opportunity for public comment. There's stakeholder involvement. And it's maintained through a series of governance that allows for checks and balances. So it's a very scientific and robust program. It won't satisfy every person's agenda. And I think that's what uh, was the case with this opinion piece. Uh, These third-party certifiers, don't they have a, a financial incentive to certify the fishery? As far as the certifiers being financially motivated, they're working under pretty strict scientific parameters by which they measure the fisheries and, again, are peer-reviewed by another set of independent experts. Coughlin says the MSC follows United Nations guidelines on certification, which is why they do not consider the end use of fishery products, such as krill. That is not within the scope of the MSC program. The MSC's interest is 
regardless of what that fish is being used for, is it being harvested sustainably? And in the case of krill, the answer was yes. It seems to me that you're you're, uh, dismissing this as the opinions of just a few. Doesn't it say something that uh, big names in the field saw the need to criticize the council in Nature, which is one of the most uh, prestigious science journals? The Marine Stewardship Council works with hundreds of scientists around the globe, and a lot of those scientists would disagree with the handful uh, that were uh, writing in Nature. But at this point, we don't see that it would be beneficial to the program and to the sustainable seafood movement to make any changes based on the criticism in the Nature piece. What's your concern here about the potential impact on consumer confidence in your labeling? Well, we certainly hope that the opinion piece in Nature doesn't undermine consumer confidence because there's no reason for consumers to question whether a fishery is sustainable if it's been certified to the Marine Stewardship Council standard. That's Carrie Coughlin defending the Marine Stewardship Council. You can decide for yourself. Read more at our website, loe.org, and share your thoughts on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. How environmental issues could help tip an important political race in New Orleans. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. New Orleans was still on the road to recovery from Hurricane Katrina when BP spilled its oil. Now that it's election season, the city's residents are looking back at their problems, ahead to where they need to go, and who should lead them. New Orleans is in the state's second congressional district, where Ein Joseph Gao won office in 2008. He was the first Vietnamese-American in Congress, a Republican representing a majority black and Democratic district. This year, the self-described environmentalist Gao faces a serious challenge. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj tells us the storm and the spill pose tough decisions for voters in the Big Easy. When David Fountain came home after Katrina, he decided to turn his house in the Upper Ninth Ward into an informal museum. It's a folk art celebration of New Orleans and a place to reflect on the city's losses to Hurricane Katrina. A bright yellow Mardi Gras costume rests in a corner, a voodoo priestess's coffin juts out of a wall, and news clippings of the devastation are everywhere. This is at the convention center. Katrina changed pretty much everything in New Orleans, but five years on, it's still unclear what kind of market we'll end up leaving on politics. New priorities have emerged, and who votes for who could also be changing. Since Katrina, we see so much corruption going on. You know, you don't know whether or not you're voting for the right person or not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. The second congressional district used to be a safe seat for Democrats, and for one Democrat in particular— Bill Jefferson, Louisiana's first black representative. He served nine terms before being indicted on corruption charges. Now David Fountain, a black Democrat, says he's going to vote for the man that won the 2008 election against Jefferson, Joseph Gao, a Vietnamese-American Republican. I think he's doing a beautiful job. I think he's doing a very good job. Fountain said he first met Gao in 2006 when he helped fight a 100-acre-wide landfill proposed in New Orleans East. 
the landfill was going to absorb the city's post-Katrina ruins, and it was sited just upstream from New Orleans' Vietnamese-American community, one of the first neighborhoods to come back after the storm. I think what happened was the power that bees didn't realize that we had returned. They thought they could do it before, you know, without us being there opposing it. They didn't realize that we were already there. Father Vien Nguyen was a priest at the Mary Queen of Vietnam Church. He now teaches at New Orleans Notre Dame Seminary. He says back then Joseph Gao had recently scratched his plans to become a priest in order to practice law. Gao's career path would change course again when Japanese-American Congressman Mike Honda of California visited the activists at church. Father Nguyen. And I remember it was a Sunday. There was one member of the community who stood up and he said, my parents fought a landfill in 1990. I fought a landfill in 1997. Now, 2006, my children are having to fight this landfill. It's a shame. How can we stop this? And I remember Mike Honda's response saying, you need to be involved in the political process. You need to have someone in office so that that person can stop it at the beginning. And that's where Joseph Cowell, that day, he said, I will do it. On Capitol Hill, Gao led FEMA reforms and pushed out a billion dollars for rebuilding in New Orleans. And when BP spilled oil in the Gulf, he famously told BP America President Lamar McKay that he wasn't thinking about asking him to resign. In the Asian culture, we do uh, things differently. During the samurai days, we just give you a knife and uh, ask you to uh, commit harakiri. But Gao's improbable rise to national politics could be brief. Unlike the last election, this year he faces tough competition. Please, a loud round of applause for none other than Cedric Richmond, our soon-to-be congressman. After winning the Democratic primary, Cedric Richmond, a young black state legislator, celebrated with supporters at a hotel downtown. It's not going to be an easy road. We're going to go up against the Republican Tea Party extremists who will do and say anything. They think that this seat belongs to them. But what we know is that this seat belongs to the people. Richmond's opponent, Joseph Gao, is far from a Tea Party Republican. He voted for the Democrats' financial reform package and boasts how much federal money he delivered the district. But he voted against health care reform and against the president's economic stimulus, which funneled about $80 billion to green projects. Cedric Richmond says Louisiana could have used some of that money, and in his 11 years in the state legislature, he voted to pass Louisiana's solar tax credit program, which offers the biggest incentives in the country. He also voted for minimum ethanol and biodiesel standards for gasoline. Green jobs, Richmond says, could be the future for New Orleans. We don't need to be stuck on tourism. So if we can diversify a little bit with green jobs, with manufacturing and some other things, I think we're moving in the right direction. Both candidates are quick to emphasize job creation, but when it comes to how rising temperatures and sea levels could affect the district, their answers vary. Richmond told me climate change isn't really on his radar. Gao says it's on his, but last year when the House passed a cap-and-trade bill to limit greenhouse gas emissions, he voted no. I represent 750,000 people. Many of that 750,000 depends on the jobs that comes from oil and gas, that comes from indirect jobs related to oil and gas. Uh, And with post-Katrina reconstruction, I cannot force my people to pay higher fuel prices. Uh, And when I say my, I'm implying the second district, because oftentimes when, when people interpret my word my, they're thinking about Vietnamese American. 
Race continues to be on people's minds here. This is one of a couple dozen majority-minority districts redrawn in the 1960s to encourage minority representation in Congress. Since Katrina, more whites than blacks have returned to New Orleans, but black registered voters are still thought to make up a majority in the district and are still a powerful political force. On a recent evening in a house in the Upper Ninth Ward, Gwen Johnson talked politics with one hand on the TV remote. She was waiting to watch her husband, percussionist Smokey Johnson, on a Katrina anniversary show. You see in the wheelchair? You see, he's playing the tambourine. Because he's a drummer, but he plays percussion instruments now. So, yeah, there he is. Smokey used to be Fats Domino's drummer. So after Katrina, the Johnsons were invited to live in the Musician's Village, a small cluster of homes built by Habitat for Humanity. She says if it weren't for the project, they wouldn't have come home to New Orleans at all. Johnson says she won't vote for Gao because he's a Republican because he voted against health care, and because he's not doing enough to bring recovery money into black neighborhoods. The uptown side of Canal Street is doing pretty good. They have three or four hospitals. They have shopping centers. We have nothing out here. Only thing we have are dollar stores and Walgreens. Johnson says black representatives have tended to look out for black communities. And in November, she says she'll be voting for Cedric Richmond. But I don't have to vote for a black person. I, you know, but I will vote for a person I think that's going to help us. And uh, it doesn't have to be black. It just so happened the best man is black. Cedric Richmond seems very committed to supporting President Obama's agenda. Aaron Viles is the campaign director for the Gulf Restoration Network, based in New Orleans. The nonprofit doesn't endorse political candidates, but Viles will be voting for Cedric Richmond. He says Richmond will support Obama's plans to eventually address climate change. And Gao's no vote on the House bill sent a strong message about his priorities. The impacts of climate change are already being felt here. We are seeing sea level rise. It's exacerbating our coastal wetlands crisis. We're seeing stronger storms. I mean, the idea that it's too expensive to start acting on climate change, the reality of it is that's a very tired narrative. But other voters remain focused on the lingering challenge of recovery. Democrat David Fountain says Gao's got a good start. He wants him to keep improving levy and hurricane preparedness systems and to continue to find the funding so that everyone can come home. The main thing is still to be done. They have a lot of people that want to come home and they still can't come home. This, that's the saddest thing about where we're at now, that a lot of people still cannot come home. On November 2nd, voters will decide who can best address the city's post-Katrina priorities. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in New Orleans. You can hear more of Mitra's interviews at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, why the city of Cleveland plans to snoop into people's garbage. But first, this note on emerging science from Amy Nin. The saying, I feel your pain, is meant to convey that someone understands your emotions. But new research shows this common phrase may be a bit more complex than you'd think. Humans have the capacity for empathy. But Italian scientists say the intensity of your feelings toward others may depend on the color of their and your skin. When we see or think about someone in physical pain, our nervous system naturally responds as if we feel that pain ourselves. 
researchers applied this idea of pain empathy in a small study. Some three dozen people, half Italian and half African, watched short films of needles pricking both black and white hands. The researchers recorded the response activity of a muscle in participants' hands to determine how much they reacted to the pain shown on the film screen. They found that people responded more strongly when the character in pain was of the same race as they were, while characters of a different race evoked less of a response. If the film showed an alien, violet hand, however, participants were more likely to respond physically than if the hand were of the other race. The researchers say this implies that humans empathize by default unless racial prejudice interferes. The scientists believe the study could have implications for doctor-patient relations. If doctors have stronger racial biases, they may undertreat the pain of patients of other races. And despite obvious differences in cultural and racial mix between the U.S. and Italy, the scientists say they would expect similar results if the study were conducted here. In a perfect world, the color of our skin wouldn't matter. But here on Earth, the truth can be painful. That's this week's note on emerging science. For Planet Harmony and Living on Earth, I'm Amy Nin. Amy reports for our sister program, Planet Harmony, which welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. Cleveland, Ohio, is hoping some high-tech can turn the city's trash into cash. Soon, residents will receive new recycling bins embedded with radio frequency ID chips. The RFID chips are like those used to nab shoplifters, but in Cleveland, they'll be used to keep tabs on who's not recycling. Ron Owens is in charge of the project. He's Cleveland's Commissioner of Waste. Mr. Owens, welcome to Living on Earth. Hey, glad to be here. Well, how does this work? How are you going to know if someone isn't recycling? Well, actually, the way we set our system up is we have a two-cart system. We have a gray cart for your regular garbage, and then we have a blue cart for your recycling. And inside those carts will be our RFID code, which will basically be used for us to track how often this particular service is provided to certain areas. And it will also track the performance of my employees. Uh Uh-huh. So if the chip detects that the gray bin is getting a lot of use but the blue bin isn't, you know they're not recycling. Yeah, and what we're looking for is sort of like a threshold at least once or twice a month that people are recycling. So if we go maybe like five weeks in a row and notice that a particular resident haven't set out their recycling can, that next time we go out and collect their rubbish, if there still isn't a recycling can out there, then we will actually open up their bag of trash that's out there, take a photo, and then that will be our proof. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you do with that evidence? The city of Cleveland for the last 20 or so years that I've been involved with the Division of Waste Collection has had this ticketing process for those people who violate our waste laws. Actually, the only difference it is going to be with the system is that we're collecting the recyclables separately. Right now, if you don't put your trash out properly in the city of Cleveland, you may be subject to a fine. You can be subject for a fine for putting your trash out too early, not taking your containers back in a timely manner. If you have excess trash out there, and those are the individuals that we're actually looking to give tickets to, but everybody else, we're definitely going to try to educate them to properly utilize these containers. Have you ticketed people before for not recycling, though? No, not for recycling. We haven't. That's a new law that we had put in place to help us enforce this program. How much would the ticket be? 
the penalty is basically a hundred dollars per incident. A hundred bucks? If I get a parking ticket for a hundred bucks, I generally think that's pretty steep. Yeah, it is a pretty steep fine, and that's one of the things that we want to do is encourage the residents to properly utilize these carts. And if you properly set out your garbage container, and then you properly separate your recycle and put it out into your blue container, then you wouldn't have to worry about that hundred dollar fine. Why was it necessary to threaten people with a hundred dollar fine for not recycling? We had a pilot program back in October of 2007 that we started with, and we had approximately 20% participation. And once we've seen that voluntarily, there is a number of folks that will not use this cart properly. Then we had to figure out we needed enforcement. And here's another reason why we need to properly utilize these containers. Um, you know, we're looking at generating some new energy for the city of Cleveland. What I mean by that new energy is potentially going to a waste of energy facility. And we're going to take our garbage from that point and turn it into steam, which is going to turn some turbines and generate some electricity. And that's another reason why we need to separate those materials which are more recyclable from your regular garbage because we want to gain as much financial gain off of this amount of material that we have as possible. What's your level of concern about generating some backlash here? When the law was passed, a lot of folks focused on the fine piece of it, and then they looked at the RFID tag and thought, oh, wow, Big Brother is looking into us. And no, it's not. It's not Big Brother. All it is is a performance-based system that we're putting in to make sure that we achieve those efficiencies. And it's really not going to be us going through the trash. That's the last thing that we want to do is to have to sort through your trash to see if there is recyclables in there or not. Again, once we get out there and explain to the residents, which we're currently working on an educational plan right now, we're going to have the carts with us, we're going to have all our facts with us, and we're going to lay it all out for them so they won't have to be concerned about us going through their trash or any privacy issues there. And give me a sense of how much money is at, at stake here. Well, this program is going to cost us about $25 million over the next four to five years. So although it is an expensive program, we believe with the efficiencies and savings that we're looking at, we're definitely going to recover this cost. We are currently being paid some $27 per ton for our recyclables. So what that means, for every ton of recyclables that I save from going out into the landfill, I make $27 on that as well as I saved the $33 that I would be paying to dispose of that material. So when you add that 27 plus the 33, that's actually a $60 savings. We get rid of some 220,000 tons of trash annually. 42% of that waste is recyclable. If you can compare 42% of that waste, which is somewhere around 100,000 tons, if I'm able to collect that 100,000 tons times that $60 that I save, you know, that's a substantial amount of money that's really been saved to our general fund budgets. You think this is going to catch on? Are other cities going to be doing this? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, there are a number of other cities, Charlotte, North Carolina, places in Washington, D.C., and uh, quite a number of other places that are actually utilizing technology similar to this. Well, Mr. Owens, one more thing. I understand some congratulations are in order. The American Public Works Association named you National Manager of the Year in Public Waste. Is that correct? Yes, I've, I've received a number of war rewards in regards to this. It's truly good. This just shows that we're heading in the right direction with the things that we're trying to do in the city of Cleveland.
You're, you're at the top of the heap, one might say. The top of the heap. Okay, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Ron Owens, yes, Commissioner sir. of Waste in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Just ahead, a trip to the far north to record a vanishing language and way of life. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Most people think of sea level rise as a problem for future generations to deal with. But in San Francisco, planners warn it's just around the corner. Sea level rise is already happening. Predictions about how much to expect over the coming century vary greatly. The IPCC said oceans could rise two and a half feet. Many other scientists say the rise might be more than twice that. In San Francisco, four and a half feet of sea level rise could put more than 100,000 Bay Area homes at risk of flooding. Yet developers there still want to build on low-lying land with million-dollar views. Reporter Julia Scott of San Francisco's KALW looks at how climate change could change the places we call home. At first glance, you couldn't pick a worse place to build a city than Treasure Island. The island was thrown together out of soft bay mud in 1935 for the Golden Gate International Exposition. It would liquefy in a major earthquake. You guys, there's another swing open! Yet it's also home to around 1,400 people. They bring their kids to the local boys and girls club after school and they shop at the island's only convenience store on their way home. But Bay Area housing officials believe it could be much more. Engineer Dilip Trevetti works for a group of firms hired to come up with a vision for Treasure Island. As you look out here as we stand, you look at Alcatraz, you look at Angel Island, you look at the Golden Gate and the Bay Bridge, and of course the fabulous, uh, you know, any time of the day or night you come and you see San Francisco's downtown skyline here. I mean, it is just an amazing vista. When Trevetti looks around, he sees up to 8,000 homes, five high-rises, public parks, restaurants, and a ferry terminal by 2030. Folks are going to come off the Treasure Island free shuttle from the homes itself to that center point on the island and take the ferry, take the bus, kiss and ride, carpools. That's going to be pretty much downtown. San Francisco officials hired Trevetti and his engineering firm, Moffat & Nickel, to make this island habitable and secure in a world with rising sea levels. Developers will have to spend more than a billion dollars on infrastructure before the first home is even built. The first challenge they'll deal with is hard to miss. Treasure Island is only two feet above the federal government's predicted flood line. One corner of the island is already regularly flooded by winter waves. 
To deal with the threat of flood, they decided to raise the island itself. Hundreds of tons of dirt packed tight will make the ground as solid and resilient as the bedrock of neighboring Yerba Buena Island. It will lift the building foundations three feet above the highest hundred-year tide. Trevetti says that even when the sea rises over the next century, the homes will be high and dry. What we are effectively saying is that when the sea level rise itself is 36 inches, the community on Treasure Island is far better than most places along even downtown San Francisco and most places around the bay themselves. What made them choose 36 inches? Basically, it's an educated guess. Cities are free to build by the bay and choose how to protect the development. Some building proposals are factoring in sea level rise, some not at all. They can't get much federal guidance either. When it comes to building levees, no agency considers the risks of sea level rise, not FEMA and not the Army Corps of Engineers. A few miles away in San Francisco's South Bay, developers are eyeing another waterfront opportunity. One company wants to build the biggest development in half a century on top of a network of salt ponds. These ponds have made salt for 150 years. A salt harvester plows across a cloudy pond. These Cargill salt ponds are a stone's throw away from Silicon Valley. Our vision is to maximize the potential of the site to bring sorely needed housing to a very jobs-rich environment. That's David Smith, a vice president with project developer DMB Associates. Between Silicon Valley and San Francisco, this is one of the greatest economic engines in our country. Where some see a moonscape of red-tinted salt ponds and white slush, Smith sees up to 12,000 homes and 1 million square feet of office space, along with acres of wetland restoration, playing fields, and a school. Unfortunately, most of the site is no more than a foot above sea level. Some of it is even below. That means it would need a levee, and some levee sections would be as high as 10 feet, turning the property into a kind of bathtub. That's a design issue Smith says his company is trying to overcome. If you're right up against the area... Uh, it'll be an attractive thing, but you're not going to want to see a, a levee and not be able to peek over to the bay until the third story of your house. The same questions facing Bay Area cities also confront planners all over the world. Ten percent of the world's population lives within low-lying coastal zones. Sooner or later, somebody's going to have to deal with the backside of our short-term behavior. The late Dr. Steven Schneider was a world-renowned climate scientist at Stanford University. He passed away not long after this interview was recorded. We're talking something like uh, 15 to 25 feet of potential sea level rise over many centuries if you substantially melt Greenland and the just the West Antarctic, the little peninsula part. So we are talking about a complete rewrite of the map of the world. It just takes a long time. As cities begin to plan for sea level rise, they may even reconceive the nature of settlements, says Will Travis, executive director of the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission. We aren't building communities anymore. We're building long-term campgrounds. And if you think of it that way, we may decide to build in a different way. We may decide that the best thing to do is have buildings that are specifically designed to only last 
50 or 100 years. And then they can be decomposed, they can be disassembled, they can be moved away. Back at Treasure Island, the redevelopment project doesn't include floating homes. But engineer Dilip Trevetti's team is coping with uncertainty by leaving a 300-foot buffer around the entire island so future generations can build a seawall. At a point in time when you need 50 feet high levees on Treasure Island, I mean, there are a lot more problems that are going to happen all, all around the world, if you will. But within the bay, Treasure Island will be a pretty safe place to be at. It's hard to imagine San Francisco underwater, but it's a scenario that experts say we ought to be thinking about today. And how we think it through could determine whether our current coastal zones continue to thrive or are left behind. For Living on Earth, I'm Julia Scott. Well, today we're happy to hatch a new feature, BirdNote. In this fledgling edition, BirdNote's Michael Stein introduces us to some whirling dervishes of the far north. Phalaropes are sandpipers that make their living from the sea. After breeding on the Arctic tundra, they migrate to the open ocean. They remain there through the winter, feeding on tiny crustaceans and other marine animals, making an amazing adaptation to a completely different environment. Wherever you see them, these little birds will be pecking at the surface of the water. But watch for a bit, and you may see a method of feeding unique to phalaropes. They begin to twirl on the surface like little ballerinas, spinning and pecking again and again. What are they doing? A phalarope spins around once per second, each bird spinning only left or right. As it does so, it forces water away from itself on the surface, causing an upward flow from as deep as a foot or more. With this flow, of course, come the tiny animals on which it feeds. Furthermore, as it opens its bill, it creates still another water current that carries prey into its throat. One of the rewards of observing birds closely is that you see the fascinating strategies they use to survive and thrive. That's Michael Stein for BirdNote. For pictures and more information, go to our website, loe.org. Well, according to that old sea shanty, Greenland is a dreadful place. It's a land that's never green, where there's ice and snow, and the whale fishes blow, and the daylight's seldom seen. Not exactly vacation land. But we caught up with a researcher from the UK's Cambridge University as he was packing for a year-long stay in Greenland. Stephen Pax Leonard is an anthropological linguist, and for the next year, he'll be in one of the northernmost settlements on Earth. He'll live with the Inuit, subsistence hunters in northwest Greenland, learn their language, and document their culture as they and Greenland head for big changes. Dr. Stephen Pax-Leonard joins us from Cambridge. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, tell us about the Inuit, how they live, and uh, what's compelling you to visit. Well, this is one of the last hunter-gatherer societies left in Greenland. 
And although um, these people live in the remote northwest corner of Greenland, they really represent the cultural center in the sense that there's a tradition of storytelling, which is really goes back to the basis of Greenlandic culture and narrative. The reason why I'm going, uh, there are two reasons really, in fact. First of all is to document their language, which is called uh, a nikton. And second, to record, digitize, archive, and ultimately give back to the community a collection of stories and narratives which tell us about um, this extraordinary Arctic society's history and identity. Do they have a, a written form of their language? They don't, no. Standard West Greenlandic is a, is a written language, but Enictun has never been written down. It's not an Indo-European language. This language belongs to the Eskimo Aleut family. It's what lingu linguists call an agglutinative language, which means it's lots of different sort of affixes glued together. So if you take, for example, the phrase, otherwise I had planned on going to school, you would have to say, that is one long word, believe it or not. A whole sentence in English is one long word. And to break, to break that down, um, is the word for school, is the word for building, is uh, the affix to go to, Niar is the affix to intend to, aluar is the affix otherwise, and then punga at the end is, is sort of the first person singular, the I. It's a completely different way of looking at language, um, which makes it so very difficult. I know that uh, in most societies that depend on an oral tradition, it's powerful in that it goes back a long way, but it's fragile in that it depends on the generational link. What's the threat to this generation link for this, this oral tradition? This community, this way of life, this culture is all threatened because actually of global warming. As I say, this is a hunter-gatherer society and it's a society that's uh, really very dependent on the hunting of sea mammals. Global warming and very dramatic climate change in this corner of Greenland is leading to sort of fewer animals being in, in the sea to kill in the first place, but it's also making the hunting of these animals extremely difficult and dangerous. And the reason for that is this community insists on using very traditional methods. They hunt in kayaks, they use harpoons, and they use dog sleds. And so really, this entire way of life is threatened. And there's now, this community is under political pressure to move slightly further south. And if that happens, I think ultimately this community will fragment, and, and then the language will be lost, the culture will be lost, and this history of, of storytelling will go as well, I think. We read just a few weeks ago in the news of an enormous chunk of ice breaking mm. off of Greenland. Uh, give us a sense of the rate of change that these people are dealing with. The people that I've been speaking to in this community, they are telling me that climate change is happening far faster than any of them believed was possible. That vast iceberg that you refer to um, is very close to this community where I'm going. It's actually slightly further up the coast in an uninhabited region of Greenland. The community is telling me that their entire way of life, their culture, will simply not be there in 10 to 15 years' time. And that's a problem for them, but it's also a problem for the Greenlandic government because if they are no longer able to survive by hunting sea mammals and so on and so forth, then the Greenlandic government is sort of obliged to provide welfare, uh, medical benefits, social benefits and so on to this community, and that's hugely expensive because it's so very remote. So that's the political pressure for them to, to move? That's the political pressure. And there's great tension in the community because the people don't want to leave. This is the place where their ancestors have lived for hundreds of years. And the alternative, you know, if they to leave this community, they'll probably end up being housed in modern flats in the capital in Nuuk, which is 1,500 miles away. They'll live a completely different life. Uh, and within no time at all, their language will be gone because it's only spoken by 1,000 people. 
And how do you prepare for a trip like this? A year in a pretty hostile environment, one where I'm guessing a good chunk of the year is going to be in complete darkness. That's correct. There are enormous number of challenges. Uh, the average temperature in the winter is minus 25 degrees Celsius, which means it falls to about minus 40 degrees Celsius, which I think is more or less the same in Fahrenheit at that point. The sun goes down for the last time on the 24th of October and doesn't rise again until the 8th of March. That's three and a half months of darkness. That's probably going to be difficult to deal with. But I think perhaps the biggest challenge, personal challenge, will probably be the diet. There's only one ship of fruit and vegetables that goes to this place a year. So I will be eating seals, whales, narwhals, walruses, just as this community does. And that's not something I've done before. So that's, uh, I'm sure, going to be quite a shock to the system as well. And how are your whaling skills? Are you going to be a useful person up there? Not initially, no. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be an impediment initially, I'm sure. Um, but I very much need to learn to live the way they live. And the reason for that is a lot of these, this tradition of storytelling, these stories and narratives and, and myths and Inuit drum songs, they are often performed on hunting expeditions, actually. And so I obviously need to be part of that. And I need to make myself as useful as possible on those hunting trips as soon as possible. <laughs> It sounds like an amazing adventure and opportunity, but it also sounds like it's going to be tinged with a great deal of sadness, knowing that what you're documenting is, in all likelihood, a, a way of life that's, um, that's nearing an end. Yes, I think so. Obviously, I can't stop global warming, and uh, there's not much I can do to really sort of save some of these traditions, really. But what I can do is go there and I can record this material. I can digitize it and archive it. But more importantly, what I would like to do is actually give it back to the community and publish it in their language, in a Nikton, which has, of course, not been done before. Previously, what people have done is they've collected some of this material and it's normally been published in Danish and it's not really been made very accessible to these people. So it'd be great to give that back to the, this community. And even if this way of life does disappear in 10 or 15 years, as people are telling me, then at least we'll have some record of this extraordinary culture. Stephen Pax Leonard, an anthropological linguist from the University of Cambridge. Good luck. Thank you very much. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Sousa. And this week we welcome our new interns, Nora Doyle Burr and Hona Lyles. Audio of protesters in our piece from New Orleans, provided by the documentary A Village Called Versailles, which aired on PBS's Independent Lens in May 2010. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. And you can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.